Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and we are joining you now from all over Europe for a special self-isolating edition of The World in 30 Minutes about the topic which we're all living through at the moment, which is the coronavirus, what it means for the European project, what it means for geopolitics, and what it means for the idea of globalisation. EU has started, as it does with so many different crises, in a state of, of total cacophony, with different countries taking their own measures in a relatively uncoordinated manner. And now, as the crisis proceeds, they are trying to catch up with themselves. So EU leaders have now confirmed the proposed closure of the EU's external and Schengen borders for at least 30 days from the 17th of of March. And there are the beginnings of a joint economic response as member states talk about what they can do together. There are still big divisions about how soon and under what conditions the 500 billion European stability mechanism can be deployed as part of the response to the coronavirus. And while that's going on, lots of member states have been uh, deploying their own bazookas in different ways. And there's a huge amount of tension in the national debates about what's going on, about the perceived lack of solidarity at a European level. To help us make sense of all of this, I have an all-star cast from right across the network of ECFR offices, starting with Arturo Varvelli, who is the head of ECFR's Rome office, but sadly is stranded in Milan because of the the shutdown in Italy. And Arturo can tell us uh, about the future because many of the things that other member states are going through, Italy went through a while ago, and we can benefit from his expertise on these sorts of issues. From a Another heavily afflicted country. We're also in lockdown. We have Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the the director of our Madrid office there, who's also been writing a lot about the the virus in in Spanish newspapers and interviewing ECFR council members like Ivan Krastev. From Berlin, we have Jana Pulierin, who's the head of our office in Berlin. Also, I think uh, living through the the German version of this lockdown. And from Paris, we have Pavel Terka, who is a policy fellow on our European Power Programme. And he's written some very interesting pieces on the battle of narratives at the heart of, of Europe over what this crisis means. But given that you are living through the future, Arturo, maybe we can go to you first. How do you see the European response or, or the lack of it from the perspective of, of Italy? And how is the Italian debate shaping up now? Oh, thank you, Mark. I think that the EU and the European leaders in particular has absolutely not understood that this was not a Chinese crisis or an Italian crisis, but was and will be, I think, a global crisis. Italy was particularly astonished by the lack of solidarity. And for example, the initial block of medical equipment by France and Germany towards Italy. This not only can create potential retaliation that is very dangerous in this moment, but I think that it contributes to a very bad perception of Europe and the European partners. Feeding nationalism in Italy, but also giving the impression to incapacity to react by the EU. 
And this causes economic losses, big economic losses. I think that in this context, I really appreciate the intervention of Ursula von der Leyen and Italy government too, trying to correct the egoism and the lack of coordination. I think that there are a couple of points that I I can underline. The, The first point is regarding the specific measure to contain the virus. It is a fact that many European countries are are copying Italian choices, despite the irony beginning by some European media, for example. It seems there is no other chance we have to find a sort of compromise priority of these choices, of the Italian choices, is to fight the pandemic and to ensure at the same time that the economic system does not stop. And Italy is offering an example, I don't know if it's good or not, we have to see that in the future, but I think that the development of the pandemic in Italy appears to be 10-15 days ahead of that in other European countries, as you mentioned, I think that is, is Italy could be an example for the other countries. And the second, and the second point is regarding the individual's behavior, lifestyle, civic responsibilities in relationship with the public institution. In Italy, as in much as much of the, the Western world, citizens tend to believe that things will turn out for the best and they try in every way to minimize the danger. And this habit is particularly prevalent among generation of Europeans who never felt truly threatened. It is a sort of naive optimism that I think is interlinked also with another problem that is the crisis of legitimacy that weakened the, the authority of the central government in the last decade particularly due to the rise of populism. And this behavior is hampering efforts to respond to the coronavirus crisis. So Nacho, you're sitting in another country which has got a tradition of of feeling somewhat aggrieved at, at the EU's fiscal and other responses to different issues, which is also quite badly affected by the crisis. How do things look like in, in Madrid? Well, we're just uh, following the, um, probably Italy. Well, not probably, surely. We're following Italy in terms of, of the impact. And what, what I think people are not realising at this stage is how long this is going to be and how devastating in economic terms. And I think what is... A, a I mean, of course, a part of the human cost and the strains on our health systems. It's true this is a crisis that has to be solved at the national level because health is a national issue, even at the EU, it's a national competence. So national answers were foreseeable to some extent. What is not acceptable is these nationalistic answers, which are weird, you know, in terms of um, border closures, as it if it's going or if it was going to contain the virus. I think, unfortunately, because... and. Spain made the same mistake with uh, with Italy, you know, of not seeing what was coming. We are going to be need to wait for all countries to be infected and for all the health systems to be overwhelmed and to all economies to come to a sudden stop to start thinking as Europeans and also globally. And, and it's very depressing to see that, you know, you need to feel this personally at the national level before people take action. And then we're going to hit maybe a lot of problems in terms of how the European Union is going to 
to be able to rethink everything he's been doing economically for the last decade in terms of budgetary rules, uh, the limits between the market and the state, health insurance and unemployment insurance, all these things, you know. So it's totally uncharted territory for the EU. I think it's much deeper that uh, time of the financial crisis because there it took us, you know, to, to learn how to use monetary policy and then we managed without fiscal policy. But this is going to be fiscally a massive, even more than a war, I think, because in a world, you know, you just switch, you change production from consumer goods to, to war equipment, whereas here you're basically sending people home and stopping an economy, which is something nobody has done in such a brutal way. So it's very scary in terms of the future for the EU and also massive unemployment. Spain is a country that has not oil, but has tourism. And this is the main activity of the sector. All hotels are going to be shut down effectively tomorrow. So this is like if you stop pumping oil in an oil producing country, it's going to be massive. So Pavel, you've been writing very interestingly about the kind of battle of narratives around this, because in many ways, you know, what's happened feels superficially like a gift for for the kind of anti-globalization populist. I mean, how how do you see uh, this sort of return to kind of borders, the idea of foreigners infecting us is going to change our politics? I have been focused mostly on Poland and uh, on the French reaction as well. I've been surprised by how the French president had to change his reaction in just a matter of a couple of days. But I'm still careful to the words that uh, different leaders are using when framing their narrative about this crisis. So when we listen to Emmanuel Macron, he's mostly calling for citizen solidarity and responsibility. And he's always flagging that uh, European dimension to solving the issue is very much important. But he's a very rare example of European leaders who are still uh, underlining the importance of European dimensions, while others are obviously focused more on their national reaction. And uh, when, when you go to Poland, when you listen to the Polish prime minister, he has positioned himself as, as an avant-garde of very firm measures. And he was right in saying so because other countries followed Poland in closing their borders. But Poland went further and Mateusz Morawiecki, the prime minister, went further also in the words that he, he was using because he also banned foreigners from coming to Poland right now. And he said explicitly that the virus has been imported to Poland in strict sense of the word. So rather than appealing to the sense of citizen solidarity among the Poles, he has rather tried to put the blame of the crisis on the outside world. And although this is just one word, uh, which which you might consider uh, not very important, I think that the devil lies in details in this crisis. Of course, there is a battle of governance. So we'll see which government has the best results in managing the crisis. But there is also a battle of narratives. I'm mostly focus uh, about the long term where after the crisis is over, whether it lasts several weeks, months or even a a year, people's mindset might probably change. Maybe the the blaming of foreigners would become normalized more than it is uh, right now. Be uh, More people than it is the case right now would believe that actually having more control over their national borders within the EU is not such a bad idea. And in a way, those whom you call populists, and I believe that you mostly mean the declared or opportunistic eurosceptics, they can have the luxury to sit and wait right now because many things that they were calling for are actually right now taking place. So governments are closing their borders and they don't even have to be loud right now because uh, there is, of course, Russian propaganda via Russia Today and Sputnik News. But there are also many people who already before believed that borders should be closed, that foreigners are guilty for many uh, of the ills of, of today's world and, of course, globalization 
as well. And they might feel vindicated right now. So Jana, why don't you talk a bit about how you see the EU surviving this crisis, but also the German role? I mean, I think one of the things I like to do is to think a bit about how this crisis compares to some of the earlier crises that European Union has faced, like the Euro crisis and the refugee crisis, where Germany's been in the heart of it. And it's interesting that as this crisis started, one of the first things that's happened has been a kind of return to the muscle memory of, of blaming the Germans for what's going on in Italy and other places? I think it really depends how long this crisis will last. But I think within Europe, the question of solidarity will become crucial again. I mean, we will be hit hard by this crisis, especially in economic terms. And I think that countries that have more resources, like my country, Germany, and countries that have maybe less resources or that have not really fully recovered after the big financial crisis, now risk to face a north-south divide. And I think also this crisis can create legitimacy problem for the European Union because, I mean, everybody is putting the blame on Brussels currently, but as Nacho has mentioned before, this is really also a structural problem for Brussels because the Brussels institutions don't have a lot of uh, competencies in the field of health policy. So it's really about the member states. And once again, the member states fail to coordinate and to cooperate like in previous uh, crises that we have faced, like in the migration crisis. And I think this is especially an the test case for Schengen, like already during the migration. But, but also for the single market. I mean, one of the interesting things about the French and German decisions to restrict the export of medical supplies is they go directly against the whole idea of, of the European single market. Yeah, and I think uh, Germany and France have been reminded how important the single market is, and then they drop this export ban. But I think it was motivated by a shortage of resources uh, for, for the Germans. So the German government basically argued we don't have enough masks for all the Germans if this crisis is sitting Germany hard. So how could we afford to export them? And I, I think that's really what you see right now, that in crisis, kind of everybody is fighting to survive and there is not much solidarity left. Yeah, there is also a ban in Spain on acquisitions of national companies by foreign actors throughout uh, the crisis, because that's also very important that, you know, again, in terms of the single market, there is an end also uh, of foreign investment, or at least in terms of having foreign actors taking advantage of very low stocks, because our main companies, especially banks and, and telcos, have lost almost like 20, 30% of their value in the stock exchange. So there is also a banning of uh, foreign investors coming in the country at this What Tiana said is very much about the return of the nation states. And of course, nobody will ask European Commission to prove its value. I I believe that it will be up to European institutions to prove that they can be useful in that situation, despite rather than thanks to member states asking Brussels for help. But the interesting thing is that the nation state has once again become the place for expertise and control and reassurance. So the nation states here have the authority to decide most of the crucial issues and not the EU. They decide about borders, they about what they open or close. And it's really complicated. For example, in Germany, it's not even the nation state most of the time, but it's the, the German lender, the, the different states that have very different rules and that have acted uh, not very coordinated either. So I think at the moment or initially, it has been a huge mess in Germany. Nobody knew what kind of the other uh, state was going to decide the next day. And in Berlin, it has been decided to close the clubs on a Tuesday. And then all of a the sudden, they were closed on a Friday. So it seems really like a big mess here. But it's also interesting how these crises are having different effects on people. So in Germany, I heard almost all the senior politicians in Germany using this kind of strange Denglish thing about whatever it takes, which wasn't very popular with Jens Weidmann when 
when Mario Draghi was saying it. But now uh, every single German politician seems to be saying that Germany's going to do whatever it takes. Do you think this could lead to a, a big change in German thinking about fiscal rules? Well, this is really interesting. Olaf Scholz has even talked about the bazooka. Nobody talks about the black zero here anymore, even though that was such a huge issue for so long. But now every politician seems to be really dedicated to do whatever it takes. And they use this wording, this kind of explicitly to make sure how dedicated they are. But do they mean whatever it takes for Germany or this have a kind of wider pan-European application? Yeah, this is really interesting. I think that has not been clear so far. I mean, there has been this press conference with Chancellor Merkel where she has said that one could look at some European measures, but she has been very vague about this. Okay. And Arturo, we were talking earlier about the kind of rise of populism in the same way that Italy has maybe been the kind of petri dish for the corona crisis in Europe. It has also been one of the kind of petri dishes for new political parties and movements and populists. One of the kind of weird things about this is it seems to have actually been helping the incumbent parties rather than the populists in Italy. I think the the economy will, will be central in this in this discourse because economy is an existential the, the economic uh, crisis generated by the coronavirus crisis could be an existential threat for for some economies and for some countries sure for Italy I think that some administration worldwide Trump administration for example understood very well the real risk and is taking extraordinary measures Italy expects that but at the at the moment uh, Europe doesn't take these extraordinary measures. And I think that the impact, for example, of the Christina Lagarde speech was very disastrous. Also in terms of uh, political discourse, political narrative inside Italy. Because this permits nationalists in Italy to give it the idea that the other European countries are enemies and not partners or friends. Some part of the Italian government look at the China as new partners. China was able to send some medical equipment and some doctors try to launch a very new medical diplomacy. And this could change the perception of Europe and the perception of who is the enemy and who is the friend. But isn't there also a positive side to this? I mean, this is the return of the nation state, but it's also the return of experts and elites. I mean, everybody in Germany now listens to a professor from a Berlin hospital who is kind of the Pope for, for this virus now. So I think really we believe more in the importance of expertise and of knowledge. And we really want to see that people like the government, that they take action, that they are in charge and, and ready to do this. And this is also a huge opportunity, I think, to come back strengthened out of this crisis. I don't want to see the strong nation state, but I'm happy to see that people listen to experts again and don't condemn the government for everything, but really also listen to what the government says and believe that it's necessary to have politicians in charge. One important thing here is that I think we, we yes, we all agree that this is big state coming back in, in a way which we hadn't seen for quite a while. But 
at the same time, you know, there is a risk that the, if the nation state kind of fails, you know, in, in putting together economic recovery, then, you know, it's going to be a problem of legitimacy, of course, for democracies as, and so on, as we saw in the past. But also economically see, you know, how are we going to react to this? See, for example, in Spain, you know, there are 2.7 million automobiles, cars produced every year, most of them for export markets. None of these brands are Spanish anymore. How do you go about nationalizing or putting money into these companies which are not Spanish, though they create jobs in Spain? Same with Iberia, you know. Iberia is not anymore a Spanish company. It's IAG, you know, is, 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 is from a member state which is not a member state anymore like Britain. You know, how do you nationalize Iberia and, and take it off from, you know, AEG? So these problems, the nation state is not going to be able to solve because the European economy is so interdependent and, and at the same time is so part of global change, you know, globalization that, you know, you cannot fix these problems at the um, strictly at the national level. So, you know, we should be careful of you know, raising the expectations that the nation state is a solution to this, when in fact, you know, it's, it's, it can be very easily overwhelmed by the capacity or, or the capacity not to, to, to react to this crisis. No, I totally agree. So, and, and maybe, I mean, the best outcome of all of this would be the realization that we need to cooperate more in the European Union and not less. But I mean, this is, this is entirely possible that, that people start realizing this and that kind of we're not all doomed and the European Union kind of won't survive this crisis. So it's pretty clear that it's a bit like uh, the famous, apparently apocryphal story about Zhou Enlai when he was asked what he thought about the, the French Revolution, that it's too early to tell. I think it is definitely much too early for us to know what the long-term consequences of this are going to be. But it is clear that in the early stages of the crisis, there have been some some big differences from the other crises, maybe partly because of the other crises. So it does seem to be leading to a return of experts, a return of the belief in collective action, at least at a national level, and a weird kind of Keynesian impulse, which is coming out in Germany but we'll see how long that lasts as it gets challenged in the future. The other kind of really interesting thing is that with the two other crises the big thing that everyone felt was the sort of FDR injunction that the thing we have to fear most is fear itself whereas actually here the role of the government is partly to get people to be a bit scared (laughs) and Macron in particular seems to be uh, very keen on making sure that French people are sufficiently scared to change their behaviour. We will come back to this, I'm sure, often from our self-isolation to look at how the crisis is changing the European project. And I'm sure we will also look at some of the global implications of it, because it's obviously something which is much bigger even than the the European project and is changing the very way that people think about globalisation, as well as the balance of power between different parts of the world. But for now, there is one thing which we still have to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. I don't know if we can start with you again. Dodo, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I would like to suggest to read or read again the novel The Betrothed, written by Alessandro Manzoni in 1827. This is probably the most famous novel in, in Italian language, but it also an extraordinary description of the plague that struck north of Italy around 1630. It's very topical. It's an history of egoism, abuse, false belief, and it offers some keen insights into the mandarin of the human mind. Great. Nacho, what's on your bookshelf? 
I'm bringing a book called Mind uh, Fuck. It's called Cambridge Analytica and the Plot to Break America by Christopher Wiley, who's the whistleblower of Cambridge Analytica. And it's the stories that were not known about the uh, kind of black ops electoral operations which Cambridge Analytica ran in a number of African countries before they to essay techniques and the disinformation and information manipulation techniques that they would later use in Britain and the US. It's quite scary, some of the things that are that are in this book. Okay, what about you, Jana? I decided not to choose something corona-related, but something different. And since we are now going to live with Vladimir Putin forever, feels I started to read a book by Mark Galliotti, and it's called We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. So the book tries to reveal the real Vladimir Putin and uh, his ambitions and intentions and kind of forecast what he wants to do next. And I think it's one of the best books about Putin that, that I've read. So Mark's a former fellow at ECFR, so there's lots of good things he's written on our website as well. So next up is Pavel. What's on your bookshelf? Yeah, so quite accidentally, one of the first books that I brought with me from Warsaw to Paris is a novel by a Polish poet, futurist, catastrophist, and a communist, Bruno Jasiński, called I Burn Paris, uh, written in uh, 1928. It's available only in French and Polish, but it's a very timely novel because it depicts a decaying Paris under quarantine due to a plaque epidemic. Very good. So I'm going to do a bit of log rolling for ECFR. We started a new section on our website, which has got lots of great articles, including by many of the people on this podcast about the coronavirus and what it means. And we'll be putting more and more up as time goes on. So that is www.ecfr.eu slash coronavirus. Or alternatively, you can find links to all the other things we mentioned if you go to www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please don't keep that a secret. Let us know about it by giving us a rating or review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast. And feel free to let everyone else know about it it by writing about it on your social media pages or ours but for now from Arturo Varvelli from Jose Ignacio Torreblanca from Jana Pulierin Pavel Tserka and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Valeria Baranikova and our editor is Marta Saletti mm-hmm.